This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Jericho's Trumpet, and joining me from Michigan in the United States of America is my guest author, Robert Gallant. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Jay, thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to talk about Jericho's Trumpet, because I'm excited about it. You have written several novels. Uh, Jericho's Trumpet, where does this fit in the the number of novels you have written? Is this uh, something that's relatively new, or was it your first venture? How did you How did you get into the inspiration for Jericho's Trumpet? This is the second uh, novel in a in a four part uh, series. Uh, and what led me to this one was I read an article where they said, well, when the United States and Russia negotiated to significantly reduce the nuclear weapons that each one had, the United States insisted that Russia destroy all of their suitcase size nuclear bombs. And I thought, I didn't know they had suitcase-sized nuclear bombs. Wow. And I thought, wow, what about if someone, uh, a KGB officer, smuggled two of those nuclear bombs into the United States? How in the world would we find where they ended up? Mm. So that set me off on the uh, story. Well, with, and, the, with the new airline uh, restrictions, they probably would have a, a, an extra baggage fee or something like that. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> you you have a background also in business and uh, traveled extensively and lived extensively in Louisiana. Is there a Louisiana element to this story? Yes, all of this takes place in, in Louisiana. And what kind of led me to thinking about this was I remember a professor when I was in college saying that cataclysms often occur because two seemingly unrelated events come together. Hmm. And I thought, ah, I had already done some thinking about a, a novel based upon the environmental issues of protecting this vast swamplands in uh, Louisiana. And so I thought, what about if I combine these two together? And as soon as I did that, I said, oh, and I know who's got to play the main role, Chesney Barrett, the woman who I introduced in the first novel. She's an uh, environmental graduate student uh, doing environmental studies in this vast Louisiana Chaplaya Basin. So she was recruited originally by government agent uh, Travis Weld, to help locate a drug factory hidden somewhere in the swamps. And she did so good on that that Travis Weld said, boy, I may want to use you again sometime. And in this case, 
Travis Weld intercepts the KGB officer who's smuggling in two nuclear bombs, kills him, but one bomb has already been delivered. Mm. Who has that bomb? So he said, Chesney, I really need your help. And uh, so she becomes involved in it. They've got one small clue, and Chesney is so good at being able to sniff out the smallest clue, end up ingratiating herself to all sorts of people and methodically sorting out who's good, who's bad, who's a question mark here. And so she spends her time doing that, and it comes down to everything leads her to there is presently a big protest movement going on at this large oil refinery north of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And the is the the oil company wants to expand the nuclear plant. I mean, the, the, the their oil facility. But environmentalists are saying, no, you're already doing damage to... Uh, to the environment and to the Chaplaya uh, swamp basin, uh, we're against it. So this become a very intense protest movement. You have described your books as action novels or action thrillers. Is there uh, more of a mystery involved in this novel, Jericho's Trumpet, or is it still the action adventure sort of approach? Yeah, it's uh, it's two very key issues. One is it is a suspenseful, credible thriller, but also it introduces a very significant environmental issue. Most people don't realize that the Mississippi River has traditionally changed its course about every 400 years. Really? Because the mud from the river builds up in the delta, in the Gulf, and the river changes direction. In fact, the the entire Atchafalaya Basin Swamp is defined on one side, on the west side, by when the, the Mississippi River used to go down there, and on, again on the east side when it went down there, and now it's even further east going down and through New Orleans. And it wants to change course. It tried to change course, in fact, uh, in the 1920s, and the government came in and... Uh, put a dam in to block it because it wanted to go into the Chaplaya Basin as its new route. But mm. if it did that, the Mississippi River would not would begin to fill up and wouldn't be navigable for big ships, which this is one of the huge expressways of moving stuff up and down in the United States. So what you have is a battleground environmentalists saying we well, you're starving the basin for water by doing this, but uh, and something needs to be done. But of course, then everybody was saying, "Hey, there are millions of people dependent upon it flowing on past Baton Rouge and down New Orleans, throughout the whole eastern and middle United States, ship stuff down in order to ship it overseas into other places." So this is a huge, important environmental issue, and Chesney is in the middle of this already, so it's a natural thing for her to get involved, and she befriends, and when I say befriends, Chesney is very good at being a really nice friend to the right people. She befriends the leader of the environmental group, 
and she says, okay, he can't be, I mean, everything points to this is the place, but he can't be a guy with a nuclear bomb because no environmentalist is going to do that. That's true. And then suddenly showing up is another guy, and he is a known uh, eco terrorist in a sense, or radical is really the right word. His forte is to go into either any conference anywhere in the world that's taking place, whether it's environmental, economic, or what, go in there, stir people up, and create bedlam and even terror at it. So she said, this is the guy that must have the bomb. Wow. Now, other than the, the uh, I guess, the natural attraction of the title, and it's uh, very succinct, is there any significance to the title Jericho's Trumpet? Yes, because uh, in Jericho's Trumpet comes from the fact that in the Bible, the Israelites marched around this city blowing trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down mm-hmm. in a and everything was destroyed there. So this is what this guy has named his scheme. It's Jericho's trumpet. He, the wall that's going to come tumbling down is he's going to use a nuclear bomb to blow up this refinery. And unfortunately, when he does that, there are a lot of people around there that are going to die. And it's going to destroy the levee system at the time that uh, the water is at its highest. It's going to flood the western side of Louisiana all the way down to New Orleans. Wow. Uh, Do you you feel like there is uh, maybe a germination or a seed of reality in your novel? Absolutely. I mean, if, if I were a real knowledgeable terrorist, I would do something just like he's doing, and even what he tried to do toward the, uh, toward the end of it. Uh, so this is a very realistic one. I've gone through this and said to myself, gee, do I really want to tip these guys off <laughs> as to how much damage they could do with a uh, nuclear weapon? But uh, it is very realistic. And and the environmental struggle here is very realistic. Uh, I've, I've worked coordinating and working with environmental groups, with government agencies. I've been involved in a number of uh, things, everything in, including uh, what do you do if a terrorist comes in and seizes your administrative offices and has a lot of hostages. Uh, I went through the thing of this group came in to train us, and they didn't say, okay, we're going to work from 8 to 5. They just said, okay, it just started for the next four days. We are going to go 24 hours a day, hmm. and we're going to keep throwing you all the challenges, and you've got to figure out how to deal with the press. You've got to figure out how to deal with the hostage problem, with the families, da 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 Whoa, that was an amazing experience to go through. So I felt, wow, I've been through all of these things. I know exactly what can take place here and how groups are going to respond to it. So I I was excited about doing this, and I did want to introduce people to the fact that we have this fantastic environmental swamp that is slowly deteriorating, and Chesney is in there 
trying to figure out, seriously, how do we keep that basin from deteriorating? Uh, so, uh, so I really had a deep feeling for wanting to do this because I wanted people to understand this magnificent basin is struggling for its life because we're, we're not allowing the Mississippi River to divert. But you can't. <laughs> if you divert the Mississippi River, then you create chaos economically in the nation. And Chesney Barrett is a very strong character as a lady, as a female uh, uh, a hero or heroine. Where did the inspiration come to, to go in that direction with uh, Chesney? Uh, <clears throat> i got to give my wife credit. She, she told me, do not make your woman dependent upon some manly hero. She must be able to significantly influence the outcome on her own. And so I had to, so once I did that, I realized how much it improves the opportunity in the novels. Uh, I mean, Chesney Barra is, is a fun protagonist because uh-huh. she is the type that if a, if a guy shoves her up against the wall, sticks a gun to her head, and says, all right, she's going to either talk her way out of it or kick the hell out of him. <laughs> but she, she never backs down. A tough cookie. A, yeah, a tough tough cookie. Is this uh, a novel? Your, your writing style, do you feel like there's uh, any any uh, male or female that, that will not respond well to it is this a novel that'll reach across both male and female interests i think so i think chesney is a character that women will relate to and say good you know she's not letting any guy push her around and she is making the things happen she's not dependent upon some guy now travis weld is a good mentor for her because he helped teach her how do you survive in this much different, dangerous world? But she has capability, and she's smart as heck. She outthinks them, outtalks them, outwits them, and if she needs to, outfights them. So uh, you you have also made Travis Weld a realistic character that is not subjugated to other people's opinion or actions. That's right. He, uh, I consider him a cross between. Dirty Harry and James Bond. Well, that'll work. He can have the charisma when he wants to, uh, but he's kind of like uh, Dirty Harry in that he feels the only good terrorist or good drug dealer is a dead one. And he never has to worry about testifying at a trial because none of them survive. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He absolutely... I take no prisoners. Well, I, and, I, I, like, uh, I like the fact that you have, I, have provided uh, some balance between the two two main characters and uh, haven't. You know, some novelists or some writers will take a, a gentleman or a guy who's uh, you know one of the lead characters and make him uh, look kind of wimpy, but uh, you have not uh, fallen into that trap either with with uh, Travis or with Chesney. They're they're both strong characters. I like that. Yes, and there are some people that say, wow, this is kind of violent in spots. And I say, yeah, it's intended to be, because life, unfortunately, when what, what Travis Weld calls it, he says, when you go into the twilight zone, that's where good and evil 
fight to the death. And he said, that's where I spend every day, and that's where Chesney sometimes comes back. I mean, when I need Chesney, she enters into it. Now, Chesney is a warm, caring person who will risk her own life to protect the innocent. But in dealing with the bad guys, she has that same philosophy, no hesitation, no mercy. Because as Travis Weld said, he who hesitates dies first. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I, I like him, even though he's such an intense person. And part of the ongoing relationship between Tra- Travis Weld and Chesney is her attempt to get him out of this closed in, so intense on this that he has seemingly no feelings, because she knows he does, buried inside are all these feelings, and she's trying to draw those feelings out and say, you know, talk to me, let's talk about these things, uh, and he's so intense, and she's trying to figure out why is he so intense. This sounds like the uh, the foundation for a good series of either movies or perhaps television series. You have done a great job of balancing the characters. I like that approach. And it also is just a little over 200 pages, so the plot moves along and should retain the interest of the reader. You've done a wonderful job of getting the story told. Again, the title of this is Jericho's Trumpet, another in a series of novels by author Robert Gallant. Robert Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-T, if you're doing a search online, has been my guest today. Bob, where do we get copies of your book? Amazon uh, carries the uh, book. That's probably the best te- place to go. Uh, iUniverse is the publisher, and person can also go there and get a copy. But Amazon, because everybody's used to toning into uh, Amazon, you can go in there, look up my name, and all of my novels are listed there and available. Bob, have enjoyed visiting with you today and hope to visit with you in the future when when, uh, other novels in this series are released. I'm assuming also that perhaps if you haven't done so, you will set up a fan page on Facebook, which is also another media source, and they can find you there probably under the title of the book, maybe Jericho's Trumpet or Robert... Robert Gallant, author, or author Robert Gallant, uh, will, will also take you that way to Facebook. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me, Jay. I appreciate the time. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com.
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Satan's Stronghold. Not a religious novel, I don't think, but my author, Robert Gallant, is joining me from Michigan. Bob, welcome to the program, sir. Great. I really appreciate you inviting me to talk about my novel. <clears throat> this is the first novel that I wrote, and uh, having lived in Louisiana for 28 years, it takes place in the swamps of Louisiana. And yet you're in Michigan, and, and this deals with a game warden and some other interesting characters. Uh, where do they fit in, and what's the general underlying theme of your of your novel? Would you describe it as a mystery or an action thriller? How would you best I, describe it? I would it? say a suspenseful action thriller. But I also always have two motives. One, I want it to be an exciting, credible thriller, but I also want to make the person, the reader, get insights as to a unique area, whether it's uh, an area like the Louisiana swamps or the Cajun culture that is so dominant there, so that when they're through, they say, wow, I know more about that issue or that culture or that locale than I ever did before, and I'm really glad to have learned that. Uh, your background is in the scientific area, or at least in research. Uh, that has a lot of detail involved in it, in uh, in that uh, arena. You have retired. Your late wife, Margie, gave you some great advice on writing a, an action thriller. What were the two points that she mentioned to you about females in specific that uh, you might integrate into your stories? Yes, she was a great reader of mystery novels, particularly by women. And so when I finished my first pass on Satan's Stronghold, I gave it to her and said, would you read this and critique it? And she came back and she said, if you're going to have a strong woman in the story, do not make her dependent upon some manly hero. Well, boo. She has to have the capability... <laughs> significantly influenced the story on her own. And your so your, your main I, your main so, female character is oh, Ch- Chesney Barrett. Is that is that the name of your female character in this? Uh... Yes, Chesney Barrett. And I invented Chesney Barrett. And after I did, I said, "Oh, this opens doors to different characters, different situations, some changes in the storyline. Fantastic! It was the best single advice." I had ever received after reading dozens and dozens of books on how, how to write and so forth. But she wasn't through. She also said, an artist paints pictures with a brush. A writer paints pictures with words. You have to make it possible for your reader to visualize the scenery, the situation, the people, everything about it. And so I said, okay, I do a lot of research. So anyway, so let me do this. And when I did it, I realized, wow, it does slow down the flow of the story, but it should because it allows the reader to walk side by side with the characters and go through the same experience that the characters are going through. That was fabulous. Fabulous advice. Pieces of advice were 
fundamentally important to me. I probably should have made Margie a co-author. Well, this is, this is a, a, again, a novel that you have managed to condense, at least from my perspective, into around 200 pages. Now, did you work off of an outline, or how did you get these characters to integrate into the storyline? I, I really started off the, the novel with saying to myself, what if a drug dealer came in and built a methamphetamines drug factory somewhere in this vast swamp where you have deserted coastlines, you have meandering bayous, you have watery forests. How in the world would you find where they had that thing hidden and how they were transporting the product out all over the United States? And this is a challenge that Travis Weld who was the leader of a clandestine government team that combats drug dealers and terrorists, had. And so he found Chesney Barrett, and she was doing environmental research studies in the Chaplaya Basin. So she had an excuse to be there. And one reason she needed an excuse was already a game warden and an undercover agent had been murdered for going in a section of the swamp that they weren't supposed to be in. Wow. So he said, help me find this factory. And, of course, that threw Chesney into an entirely different world that she wasn't familiar with, where deception is the norm and sex is a weapon, and uh, if you make a mistake, you're going to get killed. Why would she do this? The reason Chesney was willing to do it was because two years before that, she was the collegiate swimming champion of the United of, of College. She completely dominated the pre-Olympic trials in the U.S. She was going to be headed for gold medals in the Olympics, and on her way home, a drug dealer escaping from the, the police smashed into her car, killed her mother, and put her in the hospital. So she watched the Olympics from the hospital. Wow. Now, she fully recovered physically, but she has inwardly just frustration and an anger and a despair over what was taken away from her. So she said, okay, this is not only revenge. Most of all, I'm going to do this because I do not want this drug dealer to do to anybody what that drug dealer did to me. So she jumped into the middle of it, and she had to go through confrontations. She had to outmaneuver potential traps. She had to deal with constantly, I make a mistake and I'm dead. But she was very good at that. She's very quick on her feet. She's a beautiful six-foot blonde, uh, so she went in and seduced the plantation owner who owned huge amount of property in the swamp, and Travis Weld was convinced that the foreman at this plantation was the leader of the drug group. So by seducing him, he said, oh, you can go anywhere in my uh, swamp. So when she went out of Mentley, she got challenged, and she essentially said, I'm an environmentalist. I'm here to protect 
and improve and save your swamp. Mm. Don't tell me I shouldn't be in here and just ignore them. Well, that's a problem for them because, uh, hey, their boss, the plantation owner, was trying to woo her to marry him. Mm. So they were a little bit reluctant to kill her. <laughs> right. Now, is it is this the of the action scenes, because you have described this as an action thriller, is this uh, where the action takes place? I mean, is there a lot of, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll use the word guns and, and uh, shoot 'em ups or how would you describe the action that you've created? Yes. <laughs> she is constantly facing confrontations. In one case, this guy is standing in the boat pointing a shotgun at her, saying, uh, you shouldn't have come here. And instead of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Mm. She jumped him, took him into the water, <laughs> and was in the midst of drowning him because in the water she's better than an alligator. And uh, unfortunately, along came the, the foreman, and he stopped her from drowning him. But now he has a dilemma because she's saying, that guy was trying to rape me. I'm going back and I'm going to tell the plantation owner to get rid of the blah, 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 blah. And he's, okay, is she just a really overall environmentalist or is she a DEA person? Because if I kill her, I'm going to be in trouble with my boss. Yeah. So it- she was brilliant at uh, being able to talk her way out of seemingly impossible situation. Well, you took that early advice from your spouse and uh, certainly integrated into the character that you have described for us. Is there anything about the... How long did it take, Bob, to to complete this? Because it sounds like there are a lot of twists and turns that are are a part of this, and also the character development must have taken some thought. Yeah, I spent about two years because uh, initially I came up with another reason for her to be willing to uh, undertake this dangerous thing, and I found out, well, I used up most of the first four chapters explaining that, and I want to get this action started right away. So then I reworked, and that's when I came up with the thing of, okay, uh, she went through this terrible experience, uh, and that's why she's angry and willing to take it. But also then, part of the beauty of that is this becomes a journey for Chesney. She is trying to come back from the pain and frustration of having her dreams destroyed to how does she get herself back like she used to be, where her intense competitive spirit was so powerful that she never lost in a swimming pool. She never let herself lose in a swimming pool. And now she's having to do the same thing out in the middle of the the swamps with men who are debating whether to kill her, and she's going to win. In, so incredible! Now you you have journey is great for her because it restored that competitive spirit in her. You you have a very imaginative mind. This is not your first novel. You have I mean you have written several novels. What is it that that keeps you? inspired to be creative and to the discipline of being an author? I like to tell a story. I've always loved to write. In fact, in during my 40 years in technology, I published over 50 scientific journal articles. I published 
three books that became standards in the industry. I published a book on how to be a successful manager, but my love was always, I want to write fiction. So mm. after retiring, that's when I went to, to work on that. And I love going in and figuring out how can you create a story that people would say, wow, this is not only interesting, but I'm learning something from this. It's really fascinating. Suddenly I learned things about, I never knew the Louisiana swamps were like that. Uh, I never understood a lot of these things about the Cajun culture. It's fascinating to know. So, so I love the learning curve that I go through because I make myself do a lot of research. Even though I've lived in Louisiana for 28 years, I spent over a year of additional researching to make sure I had everything right. And it took me two years to write it, partly because, of course, I had to tear up the first pass. <laughs> and and get the, it straightened out. The the the, the primary, uh, I guess you would call it a character, is the Achafalaya, well, easy for me to say, Achafalaya Basin. Uh, is that uh, Was that a, an area that you had to research, or were you familiar with some of its intricacies in Louisiana? I was very familiar with the intricacies because I've always been fascinated by, wow, this vast, fantastic swampland. Uh, it's just an environmental, beautiful environmental thing. And, and I'm a very strong environmentalist, but I was determined i got to understand even more about it. In fact, one of the things that really pleased me, a friend that I knew who, he's Cajun, he grew up in Louisiana, he went to Louisiana State University, he fished regularly, and after he read the novel, he said, I learned things about the swamp I didn't know. In wow. fact, I got a fishing guide to take me out into this one section you talked about, because I'd never been there. And sure enough, it's just like you described. So oh. I said... Victory. Yeah, great commendation. You have uh, completed this novel. Uh, do you feel like there might be an interest in producing a movie out of the action and the adventure that you have uh, envisioned? I've tried very hard to convince them that, hey, this would be a, a great m movie. Uh, it has a very powerful woman, and I've now written four, uh, three sequels to this, uh, there are now four novels featuring Chesney Barrett working for this um, undercover uh, government agent on battling terrorists and battling uh, <clears throat> drug dealers. Uh, and it, to me, it would be a great series on either TV or in a movie. But so far, I haven't convinced anybody yet to do that well it's young yet or early yet it's it still could happen uh you have created a an environment where the novel and the action should be a page turner for anyone that loves action adventure this is an interesting approach to to writing and uh, i certainly am delighted to visit with you and talk about the inspiration behind it the title again is satan's stronghold a novel by robert gallant uh, Bob, where do my listeners get a copy of your of your novels? It's uh, available on Amazon.com. Uh, would be the the best place for most people to go. Sure. And uh, it's uh, the publisher is iUniverse, and a person can also go to iUniverse and get it. But Amazon 
uh, is probably the ideal place to go. Excellent. Well, let's spell your last name so people can find you. It's Robert Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. If they do a search under your name, they can find this and any other publications that come out in the future. Uh, Best of luck with this. I hope it does well for you, and I uh, would be first in line to see it in movie form. If it ever comes out, let me know about it. Great. Thank you very much. We appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. I get really excited. I apologize <laughs> if I'm too excited writing this novel. I love Chesney Barrett. Uh, and I've, I've now four, four novels with Chesney Barrett as the driving force of them. And uh, a number of those, I already had the plots with other people figured out, but I just figured Chesney Barrett is too good to, you know, I got to stick with her for a while. Well, excellent. And uh, you don't need to apologize for being excited. I appreciate your enthusiasm. I think it really sets it off and should get people interested in reading their copy of Satan's Stronghold. Again, my guest, Robert Gallant. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jay. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success, and the author is Paulette Ashlyn, and Paulette joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paulette. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us, Paulette, and becoming a leader, very challenging, and yet, As you point out in your book, it's within many, many people, but they need to learn to, well, I guess, learn the principles and work at it. It just takes work to become a leader. It does, especially in terms of behavior, because many leaders, especially many of my clients, are extremely successful, and the leadership DNA is there in them. So... It's just a matter of being aware of successful leadership behaviors. And I coach them to understand that behavior is something they can control because they can't control genetics, they can't control IQ or situations or the economy or world events or even stock prices, but they can control their behavior. So it's a matter of their choosing to be a good leader. They can choose to be an even better leader. And really, it's really that simple. Great leaders, as you point out, are really great performers, even we might call them great actors. Uh, Before we get into explaining that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book? I've worked in large corporate settings, 
mid-sized corporate settings and small companies. I've been a cost center. I've been the head of a P&L. And as I've interacted with wonderful, incredible leaders around the world, and I've had the privilege of coaching some of them, the one thing that struck me about these great leaders is that they all have a common behavior. They have common behaviors that drive their success. And that's why the book is called Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. And so I wanted to describe those fundamental behaviors of great leaders. Well, let's talk about becoming a great leader. Why do you say you have to be a great actor or performer to be a great leader? Uh, Great question. Uh, The book begins by describing and defining the behavioral model to leadership. If, If you've had any psychology in your background, you know that behaviorism talks about rewards in in terms of behaviors and the fact that people can change their behaviors if they're motivated enough to change, if they get those rewards, if they know how to change. So we begin with describing the behavioral model, and we end the book by describing that the fact that leaders are great performers. And that is, I mean, if you think about your daily life, when you walk into the office every day and you're not wearing your heart on your sleeve or you're not acting in a way that you really, that this, that describes your mood, you're acting. Whenever you're trying to influence employees, boards of directors, customers, you're acting if you're trying to influence them. So we describe common behaviors and define the behaviors in operational terms that, that revolve around self-awareness, self-control, empathy, humility, integrity, personal stewardship and communication, and even global intelligence. So it just takes motivation. We've got to be motivated enough to change, and often change is something really tough to swallow for a lot of people to change. Exactly. First of all, if they have to change something, they need to know what it is, and that's why the first chapter in the book is about self-awareness. And there are descriptors and there are ways, methodologies for finding out what behaviors need to be enhanced, which ones need to be kept, and which ones need to be changed. Then there's also the motivation to change. I think you you got that. What exactly is motivating different people to change and working with that? And then the third component is knowing how to change. Very often people know they have to. They see the writing on the wall. They're not quite sure why people are responding in certain ways to them, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to change. And so your book walks through all these different principles Self-awareness, self-control, empathy, humility, integrity, personal stewardship, communication, global intelligence, acting the part. It covers just about every aspect of what to change. Almost every. I mean, I'm sure you could come up with many, many more, but those are common behaviors and characteristics, attributes that my colleagues and I have pointed to over the years. We've concluded that Behavior is really an element, a defining element of success and failure in a leadership. So, for example, I've known some wonderful and very intelligent, well-intended leaders derail in their careers because of some of their behaviors. And conversely, I've known some not very intelligent, not very well-intended people rise to leadership positions because of behaviors. So the book is about how to take on this principle of of behaviorism and use it to one's benefit in a very positive way to influence people, to have people follow you over a hill, not knowing what's on the other side. 
In that aspect of self-control, that is probably one of the disciplines that many of us, I think about every person would remember a time when they didn't keep their self-control and all the negative consequences. Oh, absolutely. Especially many, many leaders have risen to leadership levels because they've been drivers, they've been very energetic, results-oriented, to the detriment of some relationships. And they do lose some self-control. So there are tips in the book on how to regain self-control. But on the other hand, we also talk about neither end of the spectrum is really good. You don't want to have too little self-control, and you don't want to have too much self-control, because guess what happens when you have too much self-control, or you exhibit too much self-control? People seem robotic. They, they're not human. So we talk about a delicate balance, all to influence people to follow your lead. You talk about in that self-control the three-second rule. Why don't you give us a little tidbit on that? <laughs> <laughs> the three-second rule is very much like breathing and counting to ten, only it takes less time. It's three seconds. Basically, it's whenever you're, you recognize a trigger that's going to perpetuate a kind of behavior that you don't want to manifest, count to three, whether it's shooting out that destructive email, whether it's responding negatively to somebody or just losing your cool, count to three. It's easier than ten. It sounds really simple, but it's, it's harder than you think. You've had over a decade of executive coaching. As you look over those many years, do you sense what you're advocating here? Is this for everyone, no matter what their level of executive leadership that they're in? Yes. If people are already leaders, whether they're CEOs or presidents, the book will validate some of their constructive and great behavior. If someone aspires to a leadership position, it'll teach them how to behave to become a leader. So it really is for anyone, entry level people all the way up to CEO. So this is a step-by-step process. Uh, These principles that you have in your book, you're saying that we need to get to be good performers of these principles. That's exactly right. Well, first of all, there there are some assumptions made. The assumptions are that you know what you're doing, that you're smart enough, that you are competent and perform well technically in your job. The book is about behaving in a way that supports all of those competencies. And it also builds on other competency-based leadership principles. You know, once you know your strengths and weaknesses, what to do about them. So it makes those assumptions, and it's a step beyond. It actually tells people how to behave themselves into leadership and actually stay in leadership. So you mentioned acting One thing that did strike me in the decade-long coaching world is the fact that great leaders are great performers. They know how to project their voices, how to control their body language in front of crowds and even one-on-one. They know how to motivate people and inspire people. And some of the best leaders are very charismatic. They're not necessarily extroverts. Many great leaders are introverts, but they are great performers. They can compensate for the introversion by being great actors, and that's how they motivate people. So it's much more than just understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Exactly. Understanding them is the first step. The second step is knowing how the strengths and weaknesses are being perceived by other people. And the third step is knowing how to change perceptions through behavior. It's very similar to 
what actors do. They understand their roles, and they're very self-aware. They know how they're projecting to an audience. So there are lots of analogies to acting. Integrity, the importance of it. Please help us understand. Oh, yes. When I do 360-degree interviews on behalf of my coaching clients, a 360-degree interview is called a 360 because I interview people all around a person. So it's a 360-degree angle. I interview subordinates, superiors, and peers. One of the questions I always ask is, please rate this person on integrity, and how do you define integrity? Because integrity is the most misinterpreted trait among leaders from my experience because the definition of integrity changes around the world, even within a corporation. There are subcultures. Everybody agrees that integrity is an essential attribute of great leadership. The interpretation of integrity changes, so that's why I have a chapter in the book that defines globally understood behaviors of integrity. For example, telling the truth, not throwing somebody under the bus, and so on and so forth. So there's an acknowledgement that integrity is very important in leadership, but then in the book we describe actual behaviors that has been defined by people that define great leaders. And what do you mean by global intelligence? Global intelligence is the awareness of what's going on beyond your immediate environment. It encompasses the awareness and the understanding of different groups of people, whether locally, outside your company, or globally. And that's because the world has become incredibly small. And from our experience and from my coaching, the best leaders know what's going on around the, the world so that they can relate to their constituents, the employees in their company, their boards of directors, their shareholders. They're very much aware. Now, they don't have to have a deep dive in everything that's going on. That's impossible. You don't have enough time to figure out what's going on everywhere around the world all the time. But they're globally aware and they're intelligent enough to have a very good conversation and to be able to relate to people following them over that proverbial hill. You quote Vince Lombardi, leaders aren't born, they're made and made through <laughs> hard work. And that's what you've been instructing us on, Paulette. Tell us how to get your book, Leading the Way. It is available at iUniverse.com and also on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.